Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Seth. And I'm Zach. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. Yeah, we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. Happy actual New Year, New Year. Happy Happy actual New Year. 2024. 2024. Episode 260. Episode 525,600. I don't know what episode it is. If we recorded 525,600 episodes, we would have an episode for every moment in a year. That's right. Does Rent have a video game? I don't think Rent has a video game. Well, anyway, what have you been up to? Seth, recently i have been playing perfect dark released in 2000 by rare though i have actually been playing a recent pc port based on the perfect dark decompilation that was made back in 2022 perfect dark is actually producer doug's uh, one of his favorite video games so maybe i was playing it in honor of producer doug because he hasn't sent us notes in a while so he did actually he sent us a correction oh did he oh well we can read it after yeah. our after i go through talking about perfect dark no, we don't have to read it. What's the correction? Hold up, hold up. Before we talk about Perfect Dark, what's the correction? Uh, it's back to our Lord of the Rings episode when we were explaining the collecting the shards of Narsil to Andril, the Flame of the West. Somebody pronounced Aragon. I'm assuming it was me because I'm not very good. Which is the dragon from the... The, which is a dragon from a novel. Yeah, Aragorn is the character from Lord of the Rings. Aragon is the dragon. Well, you know what, producer? Doug, context. It's a Lord of the Rings episode. Wasn't talking about no Aragorn, the the dragon. I was talking about Aragorn, the ranger. Hey, in all fairness, Lord of the Rings has some very similar sounding names. Like the dwarves right. are all like Gloin and Doin and Boin and Noin. And <laughs> then there's Saruman and Sauron. And it's a mess. We, we appreciate the the correction we always wish to make sure that our producer is doing his uh, his job yeah that's true to get back into my recently played i was playing perfect dark which is often considered to be the spiritual sequel to goldeneye 007 as it was built in the goldeneye engine though using an upgraded version and again i've been playing a recently released pc port that is based on the decomp that was made a couple of years ago uh now a, a decompilation for those who don't know is essentially when someone looks at the code of a game and finds a way to recompile it so when when code is in a game so when you have like a when you have like a rom file like something you find in a cartridge that data is not easily recreated if you wanted to say port that game over to a different system so what a decomp does is it breaks down that code in a way so that you can essentially rebuild the game from scratch and potentially run it on something like just your pc without an emulator and that's what this does it also this particular pc port does some reworking of of perfect dark in the sense that it adds a mouse injector that it grabbed from the 1964 gepd uh, emulator which is the emulator optimized for goldeneye and perfect dark that allows you to use a mouse injector to play the games with mouse and keyboard and let me tell you playing a game like perfect dark or goldeneye with mouse and keyboard just feels right also feels weird because the game goes from arguably pretty bad controls because the N64 controller is garbage to having pretty great controls and kind of allowing you to experience the games in a new light while also revisiting the games that you might already be familiar with. So it was interesting to re-experience playing Perfect Dark 
but with mouse and keyboard and running at a consistent frame rate. Um, another interesting thing about Perfect Dark for anyone who's not familiar with it is the fact that it was brought over to the Xbox. There was an Xbox Arcade version, I believe, of Perfect Dark, which is pretty much just the original game, but with like minor updates in terms of uh, graphical fidelity. And I believe it added voices and stuff. And the voices are clearer than any voice samples that you would have in an N64 game. Perfect Dark is just your general spy game, except it's kind of set in a cyberpunk world. Uh, you play as a character named Joanna Dark, who is tasked with completing various missions. Uh, she works for the Carrington Institute, which is kind of like a secret agent institute that tells you to do things. And one of your first missions is to rescue Dr. Carol, who turns out to be a floating laptop with eyes. And you later meet an alien and that alien's name is Elvis. So there are some fun things in Perfect Dark. It's definitely worth checking out if you've never played before. I would say maybe try to find this, uh, this PC port made for the decomp as it's a pretty easy way to play the game. Uh, it is a bit of a process to get it running, but I'm sure you can find like a YouTube video that breaks it down for you. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Seth, what about you? What have you been recently playing? Recently, I've been playing the game This Bed We Made. The game was developed and published by Low Birth Games, and it is a third-person mystery game where you play as a maid in the 1950s, specifically at a hotel. And in this game, you uh, clean up ro hotel rooms, and while you do it you rummage through their stuff because why not and you get to read about all the things that are going on with the guests and throughout the game you get to discover kind of like how do all the guests connect with each other and perhaps even pursue romances within the hotel you play as a, a girl named sophie who is young and starts off the game being interrogated by the police and then the police want you to recap the entire morning, and that's when the game starts. What's cool is the when you're getting escorted to the police room, it's in black and white, and then when it goes to the game proper, it's in color. So that's always a, a fun little change of atmosphere um, as you go to the to kind of like the the game proper. It's really fun, and it's a very much a uh, choices matter type game. I'm pretty sure I actually missed something because at some point in time there is a pot that gets knocked over, and you can go clean it up and i think while you're going to that pot there is another location where there is another spill and you could clean it up but you don't have to and i didn't see it so i did clean it up but then this like front desk guy who's helping out he's not the true front desk person he's like the front desk's like gopher he complains about slipping on a wet spot and I think that if you cleaned it up, he would not have slipped. I don't know that for sure, 100%. Uh, right now, I'm just going through the story and enjoying my time being Sophie and then rummaging through everybody's stuff, which I think is kind of funny. It's like Gone Home, but if the people's stuff that you were going through were that of hotel guests who may or may not have committed murder. Nice! This bed we made was just released November 1st of 2023, and it was on the Steam Summer Sale for $19.99. Steam Summer Sale is over, and I think it's it's MSRPing right now at $23.99. Okay. To get into today's episode, it's, as we've mentioned, the new year, 2024. While we all know January 1st is New Year's Day, it's also Public Domain Day, which is very exciting. Public Domain Day, for those who don't know, is the day when various works go into the public domain. 
name. Uh, usually it's a specific year that the certain works are going into the public domain. So for example, this year it was works created uh, in 1928 and next year it will be works created in 1929. It's also certain works, not other works because copyright is a messy place. Also public domain day applies to United States. Certain countries have their own rules with copyright and the public domain in general. To make a point out of what all this is about, one of the most prominent names to be listed on things entering the public domain was, of course, Steamboat Willie, the 1928 film that is considered to be the film to introduce the world to Mickey Mouse. Uh, the film was written, produced, and directed by Walt Disney with the help of animator Oob Iwerks and Disney's brother, Roy Disney, and is an interesting little short film. And it's, it is pretty short. It's about seven minutes in length. I think it's actually seven minutes and 50 something seconds and reportedly cost about $4,986 to produce, which sounds like not a ton of money, but uh, in today's money is actually about $90,000. So that just shows you how inflation has gone in the nearly 100 years uh, since uh, since 1928. Now, the name itself, Steamboat Willie, is actually a reference that might be missed by people in today's world because it was a direct parody reference to Steamboat Bill, a Buster Keaton film, which came out around the same time. It came out a few months prior, but in the same year. Now, a fun fact about Steamboat Willie is it's actually not the first Mickey Mouse film. There were two silent films called Plain Crazy and Gallop and Gaucho, which saw limited releases prior to Steamboat Willie, though Plain Crazy's actual premiere would later be a couple years later. The version that was shown in 1928 was a test screening. However, because it was shown in 1928, it also entered the public domain this year, and Gallop and Gaucho was actually reworked as a sound film. Uh, so the silent version isn't the public domain this year, but the sound version is not in the public domain this year, so don't be using that sound version. In any case, Steamboat Willie is probably best remembered because it was the most widely released version of, of the movies at the time. So, Playing Crazy was test, it was just a limited run, and Gallop and Gaucho was later reworked. They didn't really want to push for a silent movie because of the fact Walt Disney really wanted to make a movie with sound. Uh, reportedly, he had watched the film The Jazz Singer, uh, 1927 film that is considered to be one of the first feature-length movies to use synchronized singing and speech and synchronized music, which in the 1920s was a big deal. Disney apparently saw it as the way of the future, so he opted to make his animated film Steamboat Willie as a sound picture. It's got some sound in it, all right. I mean, there's a sequence where Mickey whistles. <laughs> And there's another sequence where Minnie grabs a goat's tail and starts cranking the goat's tail like it's a Victrola, and the goat starts playing turkey in the straw. Cartoons of the 1920s are weird. They all have that like rubber arms, like everyone's kind of always moving. Everything in the background is also always just kind of moving. And, like things are just always bouncing a little bit. Things kind of like jiggle to the tune of the music that's playing in the background. The 1920s were just a weird time. However, the character of Mickey Mouse was 
definitely made popular because of Steamboat Willie. Though as another fun note, Mickey Mouse was actually a creation of Disney's to replace a previous character that he had created named Oswald the Rabbit, who was owned at the time by Universal. Oswald has been in the public domain since the 1950s because no one cared about Oswald. Now, as we know, Oswald the uh, Rabbit would go on to become very much a successful character, and we have based most of the entire Disney franchise on Oswald to where even their symbol is just Oswald Rabbit Ears, which, of course, is me being sarcastic. Mickey would go on and hit it off. Mickey has been in over 150 movies and in 1978 became the first cartoon character to receive a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Oswald the Rabbit, the trash bin. And with fame comes toys, movies, TV shows, and, of course, video games. Mickey Mouse has been in a ton of video games. In fact, since 1983, with the release of Sorcerer apprentice for the Atari 2600. He has been in about 60 games, with the most recent being Disney Dreamlight Valley, releasing in 2023. Also, he's been in like Kingdom Hearts, which is a pretty popular franchise. Not only is he in, in his own video games, he crosses over into other people's video games. Yeah, he just shows up. Sometimes spookily. Mickey Mouse in uh, Kingdom Hearts, I do want to say, is hilarious to me because when he's first introduced in the first game, he's wearing like a cloak and they're like hiding his face. But it's obviously Mickey Mouse because he still has the ears. But like they do all this work to not show his like face and they never refer to him as Mickey. They call him the king. And I'm like... But that, that's definitely Mickey. Like, it's they're not fooling anyone. <laughs> it's Mickey. What if it was Minnie? It wasn't Minnie. Because you meet Minnie. She oh. um, is not wearing a cloak. Uh, she's wearing a dress and wondering where her husband is. Well, he's being the king. Maybe he's having a peanut butter and jelly. He's having a fool's gold loaf. <laughs> a fool's gold loaf. Now, with over 40 years of history just in video games, we probably don't have time to break down every single game that the mouse has ever had his ears in. But what we'll actually talk about in this particular episode is that the games that we had as kids, specifically Mickey Mania. And as we've said in Many have past episodes. We're talking about Mickey today. It doesn't mean that we will not talk about Mickey tomorrow. Perhaps we will revisit some of his other games, especially if you really like Mickey Mouse. Maybe we'll talk more about him. But anyway, let's talk about Mickey Mania. In order to talk about Mickey Mania, we do still have to talk about Traveler's Tales, which Traveler's Tales was founded in 1989 by John Burton and Andy Ingram. Traveler's Tales got their start developing games with fellow British company, Psygnosis, who served as their publisher. The first game that they would develop was Leander for the Atari ST Amiga and released on the Sega Genesis as Galahad. Leander is a game where you assume the role of the knight Leander. You know, that other knight at the round table that was forgotten about. <laughs> ah, who's that? Oh, that's Leander. I just picture him being like, like the nerd, like at the end. Um, anyway, in the Genesis version, you play as Galahad, who is a legit knight. But I don't, is he the son of Lancelot? I thought Galahad was just a dude. He's the illegitimate son of Sir Lancelot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's just a dude. Now, you are in this game tasked with rescuing a princess from the evil wizard Thanatos, which is like Thanos, but with more death. Leander 
or Galahad, is a platformer and shows off some of the talent at Traveler's Tales with the use of parallax scrolling and other visual tricks to give the illusion of 3D, which was always fancy back then. Now, their close association with Psygnosis meant that when a deal between Sony ImageSoft, Disney, and Psygnosis was on the table, Traveler's Tales would be along for the ride. This deal between the companies led to the development of the game Mickey Mania, The Timeless Adventures of Mickey Mouse. Development of the game began with an early plan to capitalize on the 65th anniversary of Mickey Mouse in 1993. However, by the time the game started production, there were only six months left in the year. To not rush the game, the decision was to rework the game to not just be an anniversary project as was originally intended. However, despite the fact that the game is not an anniversary game technically, it feels like an anniversary game because it pays homage to the history of Mickey Mouse, with levels set in various movies that starred the character. Design of the game was taken on by John Burton, David Jaffe, who is the same David Jaffe who would later create God of War and Twisted Metal, Andy Ingram, and Mike Gam. Thankfully, we have a lot of information about the production of the game from the source, as John Burton hosts a YouTube channel, actually two, called Game Hut and Coding Secrets, where he goes over how his team were able to pull off very techniques like depth of field and faux 3D on the Sega Genesis's rather limiting hardware. The Genesis version actually has some slightly more complex visuals than the SNES version, such as a 3D-like staircase sequence. Per John Burton's video on the topic, the staircase sequence in the Genesis version of the game was completed using some clever trickery with tiles and sprites. The tower that the staircase is on is actually built out of a strip of texture with repeating patterns, based on 16 frames of animation. The platforms on the tower that Mickey must climb on top of are actually just animated sprites that are mirrored. This gives an illusion that the objects are in 3D. It's tricks like this that give Mickey Mania a distinct feel to them and actually make the game stand out from other games on the Sega Genesis. They would go on to port Mickey Mania to consoles like the SNES and I'm been told that this particular level with the tower, the trick doesn't work as well on other consoles. It actually is removed from the SNES. They literally do not include the level on the SNES because it's not easily recreated on the SNES, which is interesting because the SNES had hardware that could do faux 3D. Because they had Mode 7. Exactly. But the tricks that they used to make Mickey Mania faked Mode 7 for the Sega Genesis and allowed these levels to be created. They would have had to rebuild that entire level in mode 7. And let me tell you what people don't want to do when they port a game. Do any work. It's really interesting listening to how John Burton made these levels. And I'm going to actually uh, make sure that we include links to his two channels in our description. But really, the way that they would make these projects, it was entirely based on what can fit on the cartridge. And it's him talking about like, oh, we decided to mirror this graphic instead of making this graphic this size, because if we mirrored it, we can cut out two bits. And having those extra two bits gives us this many bets total. And it's really interesting to hear the math that had to go involved in making these games fit so concisely, but also still having the games look so good. Right, because they had the joy and privilege of working with Disney, who I'm sure was very particular about how things needed to look. Now, another fun thing is that Mickey Mania has some piracy prevention. If the Japanese version of the game was detected to be running on a non-Japanese console, the region check would display a message 
message saying that it needs to be played on the appropriate console and lock the game. So the NTSC game will say this game will need to be played on an NTSC system if it detects if it's in a PAL system. Base model Sega Genesis systems determine region through jumper switches. So if you're clever or destructive, you could solder a region switch and toggle their PAL system to the NTSC system while the game was running. Now, if you did this, the game message would change and say, oh, this machine has somehow become an NTSC Mega Drive system and the game would then boot as normal. Now, per a video from John, this was mostly included as a joke for people who fiddled with their systems. So there was anti-piracy, but there was also, if you tried hard enough, they were like, okay. Right, so the way John describes it was basically his logic in this feature was that if you were to change the region and reset the console, it would boot the game normally anyway. So there was no point in continuing the lock if it detected the region switch. Um, He just put in the message as kind of a clever joke. Now the game itself, Mickey Mania, consists of a series of levels inspired by appearances of Mickey Mouse through his entire career, with aesthetics of the game changing to match the level in the time period. This includes Steamboat Willie, released in 1928, The Mad Doctor, released in 1933, The Band Concert, released in 1935, this level is excluded from the SNES version, Moose Hunters, released in 1937, Lonesome Ghosts, also released in 1937, Mickey and the Beanstalk, released in 1947, and The Prince and the Pauper, released in 1990. The game is a platformer, so each of these worlds based on these movies are platformer stages. You control Mickey, and you go through the level, and you fight off enemies themed on that level. So for example, the boss in the Steamboat Willie world is Pete. And then later it's like a crane for some reason. In, in any case, the, the levels are very much based on these worlds and the aesthetic of these worlds is based on the movies. So the Steamboat Willie level, for example, is in black and white and the Mad Doctor level has kind of a more 1930s color tone to it. You know, the colors look kind of more washed out and you actually encounter Mickeys in these worlds. So you can encounter Steamboat Willie Mickey um, who is in black and white and he's wearing the hat and you can encounter like the Mad Dr. Mickey and the Moose Hunters Mickey and such. Now, to fight off enemies in the game, you it's pretty simple. You either throw marbles, which you have a limited supply of, or you can jump on top of certain enemies to defeat them. Another detail I did want to include is that the music in the game is very, very good. It is catchy. It is fun. Uh, you'll probably hear a bit of the music in the opening. Um, I'll play a bit of the music here. I'll play a bit more of music also here. (laughs) 
Mickey Mania scored fairly well on release. The SNES version scored a bit worse than the Genesis because there was changes. With a Japanese magazine, Famicom Sushin, scoring the SNES version as a 28 out of 40 and the Genesis version as a 30 out of 40. Arguably not that big of a difference in score. Next Generation gave the game 4 out of 5 stars and the magazine Total with an exclamation point ranked the game 54 at their top 100 SNES games of the year of 1995. The game also won the 1994 Parents Choice Award where I think we talked about a different game that also won the Parents Choice Award and that game was uh, garbage outside of winning the Parents Choice Award. (laughs) I don't remember what game that was. Oh, it was the um, Sega Pico. Now, while we were not able to find sales figures, the game did do well enough to keep Traveler's Tales in the market for producing the games for Disney's, which they would continue to do for years to come. Unrelated to actual sales data, there is an ad for Mickey Mania that was printed in some magazines that just stated, Mickey Mania grips the nation and had a picture of Mickey swinging across the page in front of screaming fans. A quote at the bottom of the page says, better looking than my girlfriend. The oddest advertisement I've ever seen. Yeah, but you know what? Sometimes odd ads work. Yeah, it was also a British advertisement, which made a lot more sense when I oh, realized yeah. it. Well, yeah, yeah, because the Brits are weird. No offense to any of our British our any of our British listeners. In terms of the legacy, the game was not only released on the Genesis, but also as mentioned, it was brought over to the Super Nintendo, and there was a version released on the Sega CD. The Sega CD version had slightly updated animations and it also had better music. Now a PS1 PAL exclusive version was also released in 1996 as Mickey's Wild Adventure. A sequel was planned, Mickey Mania 2, but was cancelled. Again, per John Burton's channel, the game was going to feature various levels based on other Mickey movies and a variety of gameplay styles, including, and I'm not joking here, a Doom-style first-person shooter level, which hilariously enough, the demo designed by Burton for this level uses Doom assets as placeholders. So you get a picture of uh, Mickey rocking a chain gun and he literally uses the like status bar that is in doom but there he replaced the doom guy's face with mickey's face doing like the frown <laughs> the sequel was canceled however because traveler's tales was commissioned to work on the toy story video game and toy story being an up-and-coming movie and mickey mouse not necessarily having a new movie releasing at the time meant that their priorities were now on movies that were relevant to the audience and thus toy story was chosen as the game for them to work on. Elsewhere in the world, a developer from Taiwan known as Ihao Yang developed a pirated port of Mickey Mania to the Famicom. His game is called Mickey Mania 7 and was published by the JY Company around 1996. The port is actually fairly impressive with a lot of the graphics carrying over to the Famicom very nicely. However, it's considered incomplete as it's missing portions of what would be the actual Mickey Mania. It only includes five stages with each stage being divided up into 10 sequences. Now, Mickey Mania 7, it's not necessarily the best version of Mickey Mania out there. It's more of just an interesting kind of quirk in Mickey Mania's history, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Also, I believe the reason it's called Mickey Mania 7 is because there are already a lot of Mickey Mouse games released on the NES and the Famicom, and I'm pretty sure uh, they were just trying to 
be like, ah, let's just throw a number on here. Outside of Mickey Mania itself, the game would lead Traveler's Tales to continue working with Disney as mentioned. They made Toy Story for the Sega Genesis and the Super Nintendo. They also worked on A Bug's Life, Toy Story 2, and various other Disney Pixar titles. And Traveler's Tales is still around today. Uh, they have produced the Lego games for a while. They produced all of the like Lego Star Wars, Lego Indiana Jones, Legos, etc. And they're still putting out games to this day. They're currently owned by Warner Brothers, I'm pretty sure. And they uh, mostly release games under kind of Warner Brothers' eyes, I guess you would say. They don't necessarily tackle Disney products anymore. All right, so that will be our Mickey Mania episode. Mickey Mania is a fun game for the Sega Genesis. Apparently a fun game for the Super Nintendo, though I never played the Super Nintendo version. It didn't earn those two points that <laughs> Famicom Sushin <laughs> refused to reward it. But uh, in any case, I think it's a game worth revisiting if you're a fan of Mickey Mouse or if you're a fan of platformers or a fan of the Sega Genesis, especially if you're interested in games that do a little bit more than what you might expect the Sega to do. I, I often say when people tell me, oh, the Sega can't produce the same quality graphics that the Super Nintendo produces. And I say, that's wrong. And I show them usually Mickey Mania or Toy Story. I don't have this conversation a lot with people because I don't talk to people. But when I do have this conversation, I do that. So now we'll move on to our retro rewind. Zach had me play Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective Volume 1, developed by ICOM Simulations and released in 1991 for the FM Towns, MS-DOS, Macintosh, Commodore CD-TV, Graphics CD, Sega CD, and the Tandy Video Information System. The game is an FMV game where you must use your resources to uncover clues to solve crimes. And you play as Sherlock Holmes, a consulting detective. The game would also then go to get released later on DVD so that you could play the game on DVD in the comfort of your own home using your remote control to be Sherlock Holmes. And then it would uh, go for a Kickstarter, which it would fail to get remastered, but they would remaster it anyway. And now you can buy each of these cases you can buy on Steam for four bucks a pop where they've been remastered and brought to modern day. It's still FMV games. Now, the resources that you are given as Sherlock Holmes are being able to read the London newspaper, asking uh, one of his Baker Street irregulars to investigate or physically going to a location or to a person and investigating it yourself. Your objective is to gather enough clues to go in front of a judge and answer the judge's questions while keeping your amount of trips or using your resources down to a minimum. So you want to solve the case correctly, but you want to do it as efficiently as possible. There was a review of the game that said the game was more FMV than game and the acting was good. I think that if you like 90s acting based on Sherlock Holmes in an FM style game solving mysteries, this might be a game you can check out. You can check out the remastered versions, probably more palatable than the MS-DOS version. I think the MS-DOS version is fine. It'll just be a little more grainy or you'll have to write, find the right scale to reproduce it. So if you like FMV games and you like being Sherlock Holmes and you like going through an interface that requires its own tutorial, then maybe this is the game for you. I'm putting it at like a 50-50 holds up. I think it holds up because I think FMV games are fun and unique. And I think that they they hold up for me because I think they're they're kind of their own little sub-niche of games that I, I tend to enjoy. But I really have to, I would have to really be in the mood to play this game. Um, I could not just pick up the game and be like, I got some time to kill. I'm going to play Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. No, I have to be like dark and stormy day, cup of coffee, sit back and like, 
a leather armchair and and then play some Sherlock Holmes consulting detective. Next week, Zach, you could play War Game Construction Set 3, Age of the Rifles, 1846 to 1905. Great. I'm so excited to play that game. I hope it's a good game. Do you know who developed it? SSI? Yes, it did. I'm sure it lives up to the strategic simulation part of their name. Seth had me play the 2000 release Batman Beyond Return of the Joker for the N64 based on the movie of the same name. It was developed by Kemco and published by Ubisoft. It's bad. Uh, the game is a 3D beat-em-up where you play as Terry McGinnis, who is the new Batman, and you communicate with the original Batman, Bruce Wayne, via a radio, and he shows up as a great-looking PNG. Like, it's definitely literally just a PNG of the cartoon character from the TV show slash movie Batman Beyond that they made transparent and they put in the game without any efforts. To the point where it is kind of, it is kind of jaggy looking. Like, it looks like they did not do much effort in making it transparent. They just winged it. Yeah, so you're playing as Terry. You're going through um, different stages. Uh, you primarily fight, at least in the first few levels, robots and uh, dudes. And you do this by punching them with your single punch that you just kind of spam or your kick, which you also just kind of spam. And I think there's an option to throw discs, though I couldn't figure out how to do it. And my disc counter kept reading as zero, despite the fact that I kept picking up things and it's saying disc counter refilled. And I'm like, how am I refilling it if it's always at zero? The game also runs weirdly fast. I don't know if that's just the emulator I was playing it in or if that's just a quirk with the game. No, it's a quirk with the game. He like power walks across the screen. Yeah. So you know what the issue is, right? There's not enough animations. That's It's like skipping animations because there's not an animation to fill it in. So it's like frame skipping. Yeah, it sure is. One of the things I really like though is when you encounter any enemy in the game, it slows to a nice crawl. <laughs> also, you only get three lives and the way it tells you you have three lives is every time you die, a message pops up and it says you have two lives left. <laughs> it's very daunting. Also, I encountered a robot who would shoot me and the only way to fight him was by punching him. So that was effective and i walked into a room and a man behind a control panel dropped a like steel beam on me and spun it around in circles killing me thus losing one of my lives and i realized the way you defeat this guy is you just punch him a lot like you go to the corner where he's controlling the steel girder and you just punch him and he doesn't fight back it was kind of depressing (laughs) that is uh it's not a good game i thought it was a pretty bad game which is unfortunate considering it is the only batman game released for the n64 also, another thing that I hated about it was the music. It's a constant loop of a low-quality guitar riff, which is awful. It's just constantly on a loop. It's like three notes, and then it loops over and over and over again. It's great. It's the game that I uh, expected Seth to have me play, and I was certainly not disappointed. Next week, Seth, you can play Batman Return of the Joker for the NES. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to playing the NES game, and thanks, everyone, for tuning in to our first episode of the year. Thanks for tuning in, and we're looking forward to doing another year of classic gaming brothers unfortunately now in order for you to uh, be able to support us you can do a number of things you can follow us on our facebook instagram or twitch which are at classic gaming brothers you can follow us on our twitter which is cg brothers pod and it shares the same name as our blue sky i don't know if we're on threads no well we 
probably can easily be put on threads because you just link your Instagram. But, but then you can just follow our Instagram there. Anyway, you can also listen to us wherever you listen to your podcast apps. Give us a rating, a review. We love good old five stars. And if you wish to contact us, maybe you have a memory of Mickey Mouse or you have a correction because we said something just slightly off uh, and you need to correct it for the record, you can always send us an email at classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com. Now, Zach, is there anything else that I'm missing? Don't play games like my brother. And don't play games like my brother. I've been Zach. And I've been Seth. And we have been the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's That's right.